0: That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Cool fact
1: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company,
2: offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Jonathan Northcroft of the Sunday Times and Anne-Marie Batson, the journalist and broadcaster. Ambition comes at a price, financially and professionally. Chelsea have already spent £200 million in the transfer market this summer. It would surprise no one if another £80 million or so is added to the bill before the window closes. With such investment comes expectation. Frank Lampard might be a club legend, but the need for success overwhelms sentiment. He has to produce this season, maybe even win the Premier League title. Liverpool, the champions are at the bridge on Sunday. People are going to leap to conclusions, aren't they, Johnny?
1: <laughs> I mean, it's it's a test that Frank Lampard could probably have done without this stage of the season because as you say Mike that level of spending does raise expectation and history tells us at Chelsea that when the owner invests in players and when his expectations are high then the manager is under a lot of pressure to deliver and it's it's a, it, you know Frank Lampard's got a lot of new players to assimilate into his team he's probably working on structure and combinations and in that scenario what you don't want is to be playing a team like Liverpool who are the benchmark at the moment they are the the measure for everybody else not just in terms of you know the, the, the output in terms of points obviously but just their standards their, their, their kind of intensity their, their teamwork and so on and I think Liverpool on the day could, could really show Chelsea up if they're not careful they'll certainly have to play better than they played against Brighton and I think we'll come away from that game with a much clearer picture of, of what has actually changed, if anything at Chelsea you know are they going to take the next step? has that 200 million pounds made a difference or are they going to be a, a sort of pretty team that's going to give us great moments in the season but not sustain it and, and we'll, we'll have a much better idea after that game
0: inevitably, because so much of football is sort of melted down into managerial mano-a-mano stuff, anne there'll be a lot of attention focused on Jürgen Klopp's comments about Chelsea's spending. But isn't the reality that the biggest clubs all do so, albeit at different stages of their development?
2: Yeah, that's absolutely right, Mike. And also, we have to bear in mind that Chelsea have come out of a ban They were reliant on the youth team, the academy players, to get them through key parts of the season, last season. So it's no surprise now that Frank has been given the funds to develop the squad as he sees fit. It's probably the first time actually he can build the squad as to what he wants. So I'm not surprised that Chelsea have gone out and and done the spending. I'm a little bit surprised, though, with Klopp, though. I didn't expect him to go so early about the spending. Maybe he's genuinely concerned about it. But then he forgets, I guess, that in terms of the squad, you know, for in terms of... Chelsea, they you know they had three hundred and seven million pound squad play that game against Brighton, whereas against the the win against Leeds for Liverpool it was three hundred and fifty million pounds I saw in the <laughs> newspaper. So it's a, I do find it a little bit amusing, very much so. And Jonathan mentioned about Chelsea having to play better than what they did against Brighton. I think Liverpool got a real shock, even though they got that win against Leeds. I think that was a real eye opener about where the vulnerability is, and it's definitely at the back. And now that Chelsea spent a lot of money. And improving their attacking force, I think Liverpool need to be a little bit worried about potentially Chelsea being able to fire the ball behind the defensive line, I think. And you know, so I'm excited for this. I'm really looking forward to this. I feel like this is a potential Mm. beef that's gonna run for the next few (laughs) months.
0: I suppose, you know, you talked there, Amory, about Liverpool's defensive issues. What about Chelsea's, Johnny? Do they all stem from Kappa? And are you convinced by Lampard's public profession of faith? You know, Teams are definitely targeting that goalkeeper, aren't they? And is he just basically trying to maintain a semblance of transfer value?
1: Well, I mean, Kepa's a kind of fascinating case in point in how Chelsea are run because it looks to me like this club politics there. You know, this, this is a kid that's been recruited for an extraordinary fee on this. Sort of say, and they, look, the first thing to say is Chelsea have got a brilliant record of picking up talent but they've recruited him for a a huge fee, taking a big risk on a player that hadn't really got established in Spain. And successive managers have been asked to play him despite his different problems. That's not just in terms of his performances, but we remember his behaviour during the the Carabao Cup final. But Mm. he's had to play, and that tells me that there's pressure from above. And Lampard was playing Willy Caballero last season, which... You know, it isn't like playing a, a kind of, you know, young thrusting number two. That's playing your your kind of guy that's that really is just there as a backup, but playing him instead in, in, in really big games last season. So I know I don't think he he does have tremendous faith in Kepa. Why would you have faith in Kepa? He hasn't done it. It's, it's, he looks vulnerable in all sorts of ways. He's got David De Gea's vulnerabilities without David De Gea's sort of plus points to me. But I don't think it's fair to blame him for all of the, the defensive problems. They 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 look very structural to me. Chelsea have had a, a problem since Frank arrived against counterattacks. They seem to commit a lot of players forward. They have a lot of attacking players on the pitch. So when you know, even the defenders, it's as if he chooses them with their attacking capabilities in mind. You could say, you know, Reece James or Alonso were playing on 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 uh, against Brighton, who are both there for what they do, sort of surging forward. Now that's great, brilliant, you know, nice to see. But who's who's guarding the the the, the shop at the back? You know, who's who's protecting Kepa? Um, you add in the fact that perhaps Kante physically has, has has had a couple of years where he's had little injuries and hasn't been at that incredible peak that he was uh, when he won Footballer of the Year. And Jorginho's never been very mobile, so isn't very good at getting around to, to sort of block off counterattacks. And that team that were a blitz by Arsenal um, in, in the cup final, it looked like they said the same structure against Brighton, who really could have scored three or four and they had better strikers on the pitch. So it's not all Kepa. it's a problem and there's politics there, but there's far more work to be done. And I think Frank's got to think seriously about the structure of that team
0: yeah yeah I concur with that you know okay you it's all very well saying, well, chill world's going to come in, thiago Silva's got fantastic- fantastic experience, but actually, when you look at that logically, are they going to improve that defense it's it's mm-hmm. a fifty fifty call at the moment anne uh you know we we spoke about the pressure that Frank Lampard's under, and I suppose it's understandable that given the the spending that he's pivoting away from that initial faith in youth, is that understandable, and let's look at a case in point if we could, please Uh Ruben Loftus-Cheek, by all common consent, he was really poor at Brighton. Is he one of those young players who's probably had enough chances and will be seeing him going out the door in one of those sort of 20, 20, 25 million transfers?
2: I think it is a little bit understandable that he needs to, Frank Lampard needs to pivot away from youth because the one glaring thing that he needs to sort out is the massive gap between himself and the other teams you know, finishing, you know, 33 point gap, that is a big gap to close down. And I think senior players need to be a part of that to help sort that out for Frank. And I think that's going to be a massive priority for him. And even though he has got these new signings with Timo Werner, Havertz and and Thiago Silva, other players have struggled. And and unfortunately, Ruben Loftus-Cheek falls into into that group. And perhaps it's time now that Chelsea do cash in. And I appreciate that Loftus-Cheek needs time to, regain his form and full fitness. But there's also, I think, my personal belief is I think there's a lack of confidence as well because he has been out for so much time. So perhaps maybe a lone move instead will help just build his confidence back up. And also you've seen in terms of the youth, we see Tarek Lanty. of course, he, had, he made that decision to go to Brighton and I give him full props for that because he could have taken the easy option to stay and try and win his place. But I think the writing was on the wall when you've got Azzy Piliqueta and Rhys James in front of you and you want to be playing week in, week out, he's taken a bit of a risk and a gamble and has decided to to go to Brighton and, and well done for him for making that decision. And maybe Ruben Loftus-Cheek needs to look at the bigger picture, the long game. Where is the best place for me to build up my confidence where I can get regular first team football? And I don't think at this time with that 33 point gap, Frank needs people that's going to be on point and I'm not sure Ruben Loftus-Cheek is able to do that.
0: Yeah. What about um you know, we mentioned earlier on, Johnny, about people, you know, can't wait to leap to conclusions about this Chelsea team. What are your first impressions of Werner, who looked pretty sharp and, and very quick, and Havertz? What what were your first impressions of them?
1: I mean Havertz is someone I I've I've got huge Time for just a little personal thing. I saw him when he was 17 in a, in a game playing for Leverkusen. We were invited across a couple of journalists to watch Bayern Munich. And, and he was just a kid that had that understanding of the game at a really precocious age. And and I think he, he will be a superb player. But I have to say his debut didn't suggest that. If you hadn't seen him in Germany, you might have been wondering what the fuss was about. But, you know, first game, probably playing out of position a little bit. I mean, there's a problem that they've got. They've got that Everton, that problem Everton had about four years ago. They've got but ten number tens at the club, so <laughs> I think Havertz is probably the one that emerges as the number ten because he cost ninety million. But Werner's an interesting point because he has got you know pace to burn so fast. He was clocked at Leipzig at, at, at you know a 30-metre time that was quicker than Usain Bolt's when he was running the 100-metres record. I mean, is, Seriously? It, seriously. I mean, bearing in mind, wow. Usain's not sprinting over 30 metres. He's sprinting over 100. So I guess he could have done it quicker if he needed to. But nevertheless, in their sprint testing, Werner was quicker over 30 metres than when Bolt broke the world, world record in his first 30 metres. Superb pace and... You know, you could see when he got in the box, he wanted to shoot all the time, which is what you want from a striker. Again, so I've got no doubts about him whatsoever. Again, it's a question of structure. He's a player that you need to be feeding balls through to, to give him pace to run on, space to run onto. And Leipzig used him wide. They used him like Liverpool used Salah. And it looks like Chelsea are using him through the middle, which again means a kind of reorganisation of, of his game. So... He, he, he and Havertz were both, I felt, playing a little bit out of the positions that they're most comfortable in. And it just added to the, the question marks I've got about where, where is this, how, is, how is this Chelsea team going to fit together? Because on first impressions, it, it, it looks like a long way from being a kind of settled structure that's going to give them security at the back, but also going to get the best out of those players. And he's going to need to get the best out of Havertz and Werner because they're pinning their hopes on, on them this season.
0: Mm, absolutely. Yeah, talking of, of settled structures, Amory, what about Liverpool? How do you see that team evolving? You know, if we, if we look at the the front three, the Fab three, is that potentially is that unit potentially in its last season?
2: Oh, that's such <laughs> a tough question to answer. <laughs> yeah, potentially the last no, I, I think we've still got some time to go with that. those top three, I think. Because I think they've demonstrated if one person is not firing, you've still got another two that you can rely on. And I think Salah looked hungry at the weekend. He really did look up for it. And I we didn't really see that towards the end of the season. And I know there was a, a lot of focus on Mane and Firmino. And, and Salah did play his part, to be fair. But he wasn't firing on all cylinders, I would say, towards the latter part of the last season. So this season, he looks really, really up for it and I think he really wants to go for that golden boot as well. So I think we've got another, at least another season or two enjoying that front three. When they're all together, they're just an amazing, amazing strike force. So, yeah, I think we've got a little bit of time with them yet.
0: Okay, okay. I'll throw another hand grenade then, Johnny. If you were Declan Rice... Oh, wow. Would you agitate to leave West Ham and join Chelsea?
1: Gosh, um, I'm running away from that one, Um, (laughs) mate.
0: It's a... I told you he was angry. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's. I mean, for him personally, first of all, you got to think he's got the history with Chelsea, and he's he's extremely close in terms of friendship with with Mason Mount and some of the lads that he came through with. So there'll be a, there'll be an obvious lure there. And I guess it's like it's it's kind of when an ex makes a big play for you to to get you back. It must be personally quite flattering that you know having done dumped- never happened to me. Mate. <laughs> no, I was trying to think if it's ever happened to me. But um, but yeah, I mean you know the fact that now you know they've, they've kind of almost admitted they were wrong and they want him back and all that kind of stuff. And then on the other hand, there's a, there's a kind of tug on the heartstrings at West Ham because you know I spent some time with David Moyes recently and and he was telling me that you know he sees Declan Rice as being the the guy that's going to. Sort of accept the torch from Mark Noble and, and become the, the heart and soul of West Ham and it's it's there for him to for it to be sort of his club and and, and all that kind of stuff. And 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 you know obviously he'll get to play whatever he wants and, and be the first name on the team sheet there. So on a, on a sort of personal level, I I guess he will be torn. <laughs> and you know he's already faced that kind of thing with Ireland and England in his career. So a lot of decisions at an early age. But I I, I I guess you've got to be very hard-headed about it and say that he will not be challenging for trophies at West Ham. It's an enormous opportunity for him to become a legend. It's, it's a great club for that. But to win things, I guess he's got a better chance at Chelsea. And my hunch is that he will end up at Chelsea eventually, but just not this season. I cannot see West Ham countenancing L- losing him at the moment, especially not after ghana has gone, you know, which left Moyes furious and 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 a lot of the players furious in terms of, you know, wanting to keep young talents. So I think politically he can't move this year, but I think long term I could see him back at Chelsea to fulfil, the sort of greater ambitions. Mm,
0: you you know David very well, yeah. Um, you know over, down the years, uh, how did you find him? And you know you know I look at it as a you know, as an outsider that there's someone. You know, who's got great managerial expertise and experience and acumen, probably let down by those higher up the food chain than him. How does a manager of his experience deal with that problem? Well, how is he dealing with it? I
1: mean, he's, he, you know, he was, he's experienced now, I suppose. So he's fought those battles before at different places. So I'd, I'd say that he can kind of, he's got perspective. He can kind of see where they're coming from. The, the owners, in in the sense that, you know, there's a need this summer to to try and uh, sell players in order to give him some money to, to to spend. And, you know, I think he would probably be happy to offload one or two of those sort of senior fancy players who maybe haven't quite produced your Yarmolenkos or or Lanzinis or Andersons, you know, whatever. But there's just there's no interest in them. So the interest has actually been in the younger talent, unfortunately. So you know he's got some understanding of that, but I mean he's impatient. Mike, he's he's he's, he's David can see the potential of West Ham. He was saying to me it's got the most potential of any club you know in in the Premier League that's unfulfilled, and he knows what he wants to do with it. He wants to build something there on along the lines of Everton. He thinks that they can be the the club that hits that gap that in the market that Everton did. And he's got all these ideas for restructuring and doing recruitment in a different way, and 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 you know building step by step, which is perhaps at odds with what's above him. So I, I guess I'm I'm probably talking around it a little bit, maybe so as uh, just to be sensitive. But I think I think he's. He, I mean, the, the other thing I'd have to say is his relationship with David Sullivan's pretty decent actually, despite maybe what some of the portrayals has, uh, have been. They've both been around the block quite a lot, but I, 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 what I, what I am pretty sure of is that he will, having lost diangana which he didn't want to do, he will be pushing really hard now to get his way on a lot of other things, and that would be James Tarkovsky, perhaps, or an experienced defender, and I would certainly be keeping Declan Rice and pushing maybe for some of those things in the background to maybe get West Ham back up to speed in recruitment-wise and in other
2: departments. Can I add to that? I mean, he's facing a horrible run. I think this is probably one yeah. of the worst runs, haven't he, Jonathan, for the yes. next... Well, I think I was looking at it last night. It was like facing six of the last season's top eight in the next six games, including Arsenal and Leicester. That is a nightmare scenario for West Ham.
1: And that, that, that Newcastle result was a nightmare because, you know, David's very... We talked about that. He's very aware of, of of that horrendous run and just, you know, he said, God, if we just get through that, then the season starts to open up. But probably, probably needed something out of that game against Newcastle. So that was that was horrific, really, that result.
0: Mm, because, you know, if you look at it in the short term, Amory, Arsenal on Sunday probably is the promise of more pain, isn't it? And it will inevitably, I suppose, summon some memories of Jack Wilshire, who... You know, Do you agree with me that he's probably going to end up being regarded as one of the great lost talents?
2: No, I don't think so because at the moment he's injury-free and I think that is what has pretty much curtailed Jack Wilshire's career. And I sigh at Jack Wilshire because the potential that he had, it just I'm sad for him and I don't want to pity him because that would be completely wrong, but I'm sensitive to the fact that his body has not allowed him to develop into the player that he, he wants to. Be and and I think the contribution that he he made to Arsenal was immense, and he'll forever be loved by our schooners. But he's not been able to deliver on that promise at Bournemouth, and it's the same at West Ham as well. So, I'm for Declan Rice, I I keep him separate because he's pretty much been injury free and he's featured frequently in the the England squad. Obviously, Southgate has got a lot of faith in him as a player as well. So, I think I, I agree with Jonathan, I think Declan Rice needs to stay at West Ham for another season. I do wonder if Chelsea think if he's ready from a technical point of view and if he stays for another year at West Ham, he'll be able to develop on that. And if they are able to bring James Tarkowski in from Burnley, that can only help develop Declan Rice as a defensive midfielder. So um, I'm not, I'm not going to say that he's along the same lines as Jack Wilshere. I think we're, we're well away from that at the moment. It's just a case of him staying injury-free and continue being the player that West Ham need over the next six games at least to get them through this rough period.
0: Yeah, yeah. As you say, you you are a gooner. Uh, you must be quite happy with life at the moment. Um, <laughs> Overmaan's signed his contract. Arteta, you know, is beginning to evolve as at least a Wenger light. You know, what's your overall impression, Amory, of the way that that team, that squad, maybe the the ethos of the club is beginning to develop?
2: Okay, if I'm allowed to put my gooner hat on for a second. <laughs> I'm delighted. I'm delighted that the way that the the squad is going and and I'm delighted that Arteta is now starting to see the fruits of his labour. They've obviously worked really, really hard on the training pitch, particularly with their pressing, making sure that they're tracking back. You know, you wouldn't have seen a year ago, you wouldn't see a Bamian tracking back and now he is, which is an absolute revelation. My slight reservation is about Emi Martinez going to Aston Villa. I kind of hoped that that would fall by the wayside. Not because I don't think Aston Villa deserve a good keeper, because they do, and I'm sure Tom Heaton is slightly concerned that Emi Martinez is now going to be potentially the number one there. But I think for us, I think he was immense in those last 12 games and he offered us an alternative. I feel more, I felt more confident with Martinez being in goal when we needed to play out from the back than I do with Burned Leno. There were times where Bern Leno took some unnecessary risks and that, you know, at the time our defence isn't, wasn't that brilliant it's going to be vastly improved now with the signings that we've brought in but at the time I did worry about that and I thought Martinez he just offered something extra to that backline defense commanding the setup pieces and so on and so forth and and I did hope that Arsenal could maybe find a way of keeping him in in some shape or form but I accept the fact that they've reluctantly let him go and it has been a reluctant sell because he wants to be number one and who are we as Arsenal to stop him from doing that but at the same time can Bern Leno play goalkeeper for every single game and if he suffers touch wood I hope this doesn't happen touch wood but if he was to suffer another injury where does that leave Arsenal again so I wish IME Martinez all the best and I'm sure he'll he'll be brilliant at Aston Villa, but I do say that with a bit of a heavy heart. I'm delighted that Aubameyang has signed the contract. It's been a long time coming for sure. I'm sure that's offered a lot of reinsurance. It's now a question if they can get one more signing in and maybe Terreira going on loan or being sold abroad. I think Arsenal will be pretty much there.
0: Good. Can I steer you across North London, Johnny? Mm. Uh, Spurs. Mm. Uh, Gareth Bale, it looks... Pretty likely now that he'll be on his way from Madrid, you know, possibly as early as later today. Let's assess the logic of the deal. Looks like, you know, it'll be a loan deal. Spurs playing about half his wages, so around about £15 million. Now, he's only 31 and he hasn't got as many miles on the clock as others. You know, he only played 1,200 minutes last season, for instance. Why shouldn't Spurs do a deal like this provided his attitude is right? Yeah,
1: I mean, look at my at my old age there's a few signings that get you excited, but this is actually one just from a neutral's point of view I'm I'm quite thrilled about really to see Bale back in the Premier League but also somewhere that that is kind of spiritually important to him that's going to inspire him because you know, we're talking about one of the best British players in history when 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 he's when he's at his best. And I think the question marks about his motivation and character are, I think that's propaganda, actually, that that, that the Real Madrid machine has put out over the years to justify his exclusion by Zidane. I think you only have to look at Gareth Bale for Wales to see the character that he's got, the leadership he takes on, but also think about him throughout his career. This is a kid that was absolutely written off at one point who... Harry Redknapp thought was jinxed because he couldn't couldn't win a game with Gareth Bale in the in the eleven. You know, he was in such a difficult position early in his Spurs career. And to to build up to become the player he has done, you know, he's got huge reserves of character and will will, I'm sure, be the right fit that wise, that way, that way for Spurs. The logic from their point of view, it's clear that they're thinking short term now. It's you know which is what you get with Mourinho. Appointing Mourinho was an was an opportunity. An, sorry, an attempt to accelerate Spurs towards becoming something that that would win. And the whole you know the whole documentary is about here comes the troubleshooter to turn this bunch of you know blah 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 Josie's and they've them into shape.
0: That's All it needed was spaghetti Western <laughs> music, that one, didn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah,
1: exactly. Um, and Jose, Jose, you know, is is playing exactly that part. He's trying to he's trying to harden them up. He's trying to make them winners. Signing Gareth Bale and perhaps, you know, being willing to let someone like Deli Alley go. It just shows that, you know, they let Kyle Walker-Peters go. Maybe Eric Lamella will go. These are the players they were trying to develop and they're in a different phase now. Mourinho does tend to deliver at some point and then just leave wreckage behind him. And and I wonder if that's where we are with Spurs, (laughs) but for this season, this might be the delivering season and Gareth Bill gives him a much better chance of delivering, of
0: course. Yeah. Like you, I think he's been grossly underestimated and you're right that he has been a victim of the, of the propaganda system in Madrid. You know, having spoken to him there, I've always been impressed by how ground grounded he is and, you know, the, the the work ethic that he does have. You know, all this stuff about him, you know, basically being only comfortable when he's over over a wedge shot into a to a, the fifteenth green is, is just nonsense. Delhi, Amory, again, I suppose he can learn from Bale in the way that he's sustained a career right at the top. We've lost the Delhi of two seasons ago. Do you think his career does need a jump start? And if so where there's there's talk that he, he would go the other way to Madrid, which you know might be frying pan and fire. I don't know.
2: Do you know what? When I was watching the documentary, I was amazed how softly spoken Delielli is. Mm. I expected him to be this kind of. Loud in your face kind of character, and he wasn't at all. He was very quiet. So I mean, he he learned how to cook beans finally in the microwave. <laughs> but apart from that, his character he wasn't what I expected at all. And and I remember Mike that talk when he was around about nineteen, twenty years old about him going to potentially going to PSG. I remember that and, and all the expectation and the hype that, that came with that. And then it, it's kind of, well, it's died away now, potentially. I think, yes, it's, um, I think a, a move away from Spurs would be a benefit for him, for sure. I think he could, the potential of Bale now coming to Spurs means there's going to be even more attacking midfielder options available for Mourinho. So I think Deli needs to really think about how he can how he can move his career forward. I don't want to say that he hasn't lived up to expectation yet because he's only 24 years old. And I think we tend to forget that sometimes. He's still a, a a young person in terms of his career. He's still got time on his side. But the one thing that is on his CV is he wants to be back into the England team. And with the Euros coming up next year, he will need regular football to break back in. And if that means moving away to Real Madrid or to another team that can guarantee him that, then it's a smart move for sure. And it's a chance to revive his talent as well. Like, I think it's a bit of a shame that, you know, from the talk of the, in, within the documentary, I did get the sense that Mourinho wanted to try and work with him and tease that special skill that he brings back to the pitch and it, and it hasn't delivered on that front. So I think, yeah, Ali, take a move hundred percent, take a move. If somebody comes on and gives you a good offer on the table, take it. Because I think for you, your priority is to get back into the Euro, into the England squad and play for the Euros for next year.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting one because if you look at their their schedule, Johnny, um, John Cross, a friend of this programme, uh, put out a, a tweet today which, to be honest, took me by surprise, where he actually articulated the fixture schedule that Spurs have got. Forgive me, I'll run through it really quickly. They're playing Lokomotiv Plovdiv tonight in the Europa League. Sunday, they've got Southampton in the Prem. Leighton Orient in the League Cup on Tuesday. On Thursday, they've got a European Europa League qualifier. Saturday, they've got Newcastle at home. The following Thursday, a potentially a Europa League playoff. And then, by the way, on October the 3rd, they've got Manchester United, subject to changing for TV. That's one heck of a schedule. And there's no surprise that an articulate, intelligent footballer like Eric Dyer is basically saying, hang on a second. You're killing us.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's horrific, and that that always states where clubs are, where you know we've got this truncated season, and none of the money making agencies, i.e. The, the 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 leagues, the FAs, the the international federations, are willing to give ground on fixtures. So what happens? It gets shunted down the line to the players. You can just play more, and you just play all the time. And Spurs are at the very sharp end of that. And and I think they face the added complication of, first of all, Mourinho isn't a manager who likes to have a sort of big squad and rotate a lot. His style's always been to keep it tight, to keep his kind of small band and and to play them quite a lot. I think Spurs, I mean, I I spoke to one of the Spurs players recently and and, and they were saying how, uh, we were asking about lockdown and and he was saying how hard they'd worked. They were on Zoom every day and they were doing, you know, kind of, Squad stuff, exercises. So I think mentally they probably didn't get the kind of break in lockdown that that people might think. So they, you know, then they've played the season, had that short break, and, and Mourinho's worked them quite hard ever since they got back. So I think they'll be mentally quite frazzled. Plus they've had that that documentary and all the tension around it, the upheaval at the club, and you know this is off the back of Pochettino and 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 all that happened last year so I I, I think they must be quite tired already and that's that's worrying going into something like this and those plovdiv games aren't games that they can give away lightly I mean that that's the other thing you know when I talk about Mourinho delivering it's more likely to be a Europa League or a cup so he'll take those cups seriously these guys will not get a rest and they're all international players as well it's it's kind of cruel on them I think not not that some listeners might just think, oh well, they earn a lot of money, blah, blah, blah. They're still human beings and I think they're gonna be mentally and physically tired.
0: Yeah, I think they do deserve more support, definitely. Yeah, I mentioned Manchester United at the end of that amory. They start against Palace on Saturday. What expectations do you have for them this season? Do
2: you know what? They surprised me finishing third in the Premier League last season. I didn't I wouldn't have. If you'd asked me last year where do you think Manchester United would have finished, I would have said top I would have said either sixth or fifth. I didn't expect them to finish third at all. So my expectation is that they they will want to improve on that and finish second or first. But of course, Liverpool and Manchester City will have something to say about that. I think there's been, I I hope the talk about Jadon Sancho has not been a distraction for Manchester United too much. I think they'll still do what they need to do. They're going to be meeting a team that they've had an interesting play against. They'll come into that game against Crystal Palace, With some momentum, of course. But also Crystal Palace will come into that game with a little bit of momentum as well. So my expectation is I think they're going to go for all cups possible. They're back in the Champions League. They'll want to try and win the Premier League. They'll want to win the League Cup and the FA Cup as well. I think Bruno Fernandes is going to play a massive part this season for them as well. I'm slightly concerned about... Marcus Rashford, because he's a little bit injury prone at the moment. I'm hoping that they can come up with a plan B when he's not available for them. But also the goalkeeping situation as well. I'm interested to see how that's going to play out, because we now know that Dean Henderson has signed a contract Back with United. But David De Gea is still there. As far as I'm aware, He and, and no, he's still the number one goalkeeper. So how is that going to work forward? Will Henderson push De Gea to become a better goalkeeper or are they going to split their duties or will potentially Henderson become the number one? I think that's something that I think Oli Gunnar Solskjaer is going to have to clarify fairly quickly because if he wants to improve that position, particularly in the Premier League, he's going to have to choose which goalkeeper is going to be help, them, help them to achieve that.
0: Yeah, let's broaden the conversation if we could, please, Johnny. Still with a united theme. Mason Greenwood. It does appear that it's open season on him in certain sections of the media. I find that depressingly predictable. You know, when when we're talking about the instances of, you know, Raheem Sterling. Are we in our trade? Do we have to look hard at our trade and think what are we trying to do here? What are certain individuals or certain institutions trying to do to young players? Because, you know, frankly, that was so derivative. What has happened over mm. the last couple of weeks? It just depresses the life out of me as someone who, mm. you know, as you know, without being over the top, you know, given it's been part of my life. You know, the you know, journalism has been my life. You know,
1: I know, Mike. I mean, you, you know, you use the word derivative there, and I, I share your feelings. I, I feel there's an old-fashioned type of journalism that should have died out years ago. And I'm not even sure the public wants it anymore. And targeting someone like Mason Greenwood, look, he made a mistake in Iceland. And of course, that's a story. You can't, I'm not going to pretend that's not a great story for in, in, in kind of, you know, tabloid terms. Of course, that's a story. But there needs to be perspective. He's an 18-year-old, 19-year-old kid. The naivety was startling, but would I maybe've done the same in the same position same opportunity i I possibly I mean we've all been 19 there needs to be some human kind of understanding really of that so I've, that's not the complaint but to follow that up you know with with let's now it's open season on, on Mason Greenwood is at that age just yeah it's that old fashioned journalism and and I don't think the public like it I really don't it struck me that if if Fergie was still Manchester United manager he would have his arm around Mason Greenwood, and he'd be saying, "This is what happens when you go or you go away with England. You can't, you can't trust the FA. You can't. <laughs> you don't need that in your life, son. You know." And, and he'd be he'd, he'd he'd use this as to Man United's advantage. But um,
0: I spoken like a true <laughs> Scot. may say so. Mate.
1: <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> I used to have to translate Fergie's press conferences for some of the other Sundays, by the way. But um, I feel for I feel for Mason Greenwood. It, it, it's it's a big thing to deal with at that age. And you know, he, he's, he's having a very, very sort of abrupt introduction to being a top footballer in all sorts of ways. And this is part of it. He's got a really good person to protect him and, and help him in Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And as I say, when you step back from it, you know, he's a kid that's made a couple of silly mistakes, but they aren't, they aren't great big issues for me in terms of his football, his, his actual character. It just tells me that he's young and a bit, he's, he's a bit
0: silly at the moment. What's your view on it, Amory?
2: I don't know why. I fail to see why this is in the public interest. I'm still. I don't know. I, I work within the industry as well, and I don't understand why would the public be interested in this type of story. And, and I'm speculating, but I suspect someone's approached the newspaper, and go, "Oh, I've got this video of Mason Greenwood doing something really wrong," and, and someone's gone, "Okay, let's run it as a story." I'd love for someone to go actually, we're not going to run it as a story. It's not in the public interest it's not going to help help us sell papers. It's not worth our time and just and leave it alone i didn't I didn't understand why they needed to run the story in the first place, and as you mentioned, Mike, in the past, we've had stories about Jack Grealish and, and Berahino and Raheem Sterling. These are minor, minor scandals, minor scandals, if you like, that really have no interest to me and to the wider public. So I agree with what Jonathan is saying. And it takes a lot to own up to your mistakes. We've all been there, you know. I have no doubt my parents, if I'd done it, would have torn a strip off me anyway. <laughs> and then to get it in the newspapers and social media and on TV and on radio, that's a lot to take on board for an 18-year-old. And I know he's a he's... Legally, he's an adult, but there's still a lot for anybody to take on board, even in the public eye. So I think it's, I think Jonathan's right. It's like old school journalism should have died a death a long time ago. And I'm hoping now, well, I say I hope now, I want now newspapers not to run stories like this anymore, because it's its just not the way things should be done going forward.
0: Yeah, I wish uh, I had your faith in, in that <laughs> actually <laughs> happening, to be honest. Um, you, you mentioned... Um, uh, Jack Grealish there, uh Amory. What's your view on him signing that new five-year deal at Villa? Don't want to be too uncharitable here. Was that simply because he didn't get a better offer elsewhere?
2: Potentially, yes. And I think his heart is Villa. He's Villa through and through. You climb in half, he, he bleeds Villa. And I think he loves that club. He's been with that club for a long time. And I... I read also an interview that he gave that he spoke to, he obviously spoke to Dean Smith and he had a FaceTime with the owner, but he was also Christian Perslow, who is to me coming across as somebody who's got a very big vision about where he wants to take Aston Villa. I spoke to, Anita Asante the other day, who's just joined Aston Villa Women, and she sat down and had a conversation with Christian Perslow, and he sold her this amazing idea about where he wants to take the club. And I think they've got big plans for Villa. They deserve to be, or to remain in the Premier League. They've got fantastic supporters up there. And I think for him, he wants to help them achieve what they want to achieve. And I think, to be honest, the interest in Manchester United probably did wane away. I think, the minute talk started about Jaden Sancho. For me, Jack Grealish, he works hard, he's dedicated, he's got a natural ability. Yes, he's been overhyped at times, which player hasn't nowadays. But I think for me, it's the right call. It's a place he wants to be.
0: Yeah. What about Burnley? We talk about you know people with vision. Sean Dyche had a, a, f- a fundamental vision for that club, which he's actually fulfilled. They start at Leicester. Is this going to be another defiant season or... Are you picking up the indications, Johnny, that the Dyche era might be winding down?
1: Yeah, um, it does look like an end game, but it might be a long, slow end game, actually. he's Where can he take Burnley? You know, he he he's, what does he do, finish sixth, seventh again, which would be unbelievable, but they've sort of done that before. There is a ceiling there. I actually understand where the owners are coming from, where the the executives are coming from, because why would they, you know, that's a club that was on the brink, what, 20 years ago. Why would they want to to kind of take all those risks and gambles in terms of of signing older, more experienced players on big wages? So I, I just think there's a natural kind of end to it in sight. You hear quite a few things about... Sean and, and clubs that are interested in him. I mean, that's been around for a couple of years, but I think maybe there's there's a couple I've heard of that are, are more sort of firm than, than before. And I, I think that will end when the the vacancy is there and someone goes in and gets Sean Dice, and there'll be a new era for Burnley. But one thing I'd say is that group of players, You got to, it isn't all Sean Dice. That group of players is incredibly unified and strong and it's got great characters. Like so, Ben, Ben, me, and and Ashley Barnes, and, and and so on, and they 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 will survive a lot of stuff. They've survived all the politics already, and I've got sort tr- of trust in them that that whatever happens at the top, they'll 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 sort of battle through, defiant. Mike, you're right. They'll, they'll 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 defy things and be all right this season. What even if Sean does end up going?
0: Yeah. Now now we spent today talking about huge sums of money millions upon millions being spent at the highest level of the game. Macclesfield went bust yesterday for the sake of half a million pounds. Loose change. Southend have six weeks to repay their debts or they could suffer a similar fate. Fans have lost their club and football is facing a nuclear winter. More clubs are under threat. The question is what can be done to ensure a sustainable future? There are no simple answers, but Amory, what would you like to see happen in the next couple of months, or even over the next three to five years?
2: I had a long think about this uh, the other last night, and I was thinking a few things. You need to sort out the rules and methods of association when it comes to the EFL. I think you also need to sort out the new owners test, or is it still called the fit and proper persons test? I get confused now what they call it, but you need to think, of, sort that out for sure. Also, stop thinking about your own vested interests. Think about the bigger picture. Think about the fans. Think about what football delivers to local communities. Stop thinking about yourselves and think about the bigger picture, what football can do, bringing people together, social cohesion. Yes, it's all. I appreciate that you've got to think about your clubs and the players and so on and so forth, but there is a wider uh, community here that also needs to be considered. And I think that sometimes too many vested interests have clouded people's judgment sometimes when it comes to certain things. I also think there needs to be a little bit of greater control about cost and about spend. Clearly, some teams have spent beyond their means, and and we're seeing that now. And Macclesfield is not the first; it's not well, it's not going to be the last. Put it that way, you know. Southend, as you, you mentioned, Mike, potentially they're they're facing some bills that they need to pay, and other clubs as well. I also think the government needs to review football governments. I know people are reluctant about the government getting involved, but I think we're getting to that point now because clearly EFL and various others cannot sort it out for themselves. So I think potentially the government should step in. The solidarity payments that the Premier League have helped with, I have under- I understood that they've uh, paid some of the money and there's more due to come, but maybe the Premier League isn't, cannot be seen as a place as... To go to cap in hand, asking to sort out the EFL and, and the clubs and so on and so forth, they can only help so much. As much as we'd love the Premier League to do more, I, I think we, you know, the EFL and the clubs need to look at their own sustainability. How can they generate funds in this difficult time? And one way to do that is to push the government to allow more fans, obviously using social distancing rules, back into. The grounds and the stadiums, because that money can help keep clubs going, and i 'm sure there 's a way they can figure out how to do that um, and also look at future parachute payments as well i 'm not entirely sure that that 's a system that has worked in everybody's in everybody 's favor that 'll be my final point really on that, but I think um for sure clubs in the EFL are facing an uncertain future i 'm all for the salary cap I know that there 's been some anger and some concerns about how that's going to work for Leagues 1 or 2, but it's the right step forward. It's going to take a little bit of time trying to to get it to the place where it needs to be, but I think it's long overdue to have a salary cap.
0: Yeah, there's a lot to unpick there, Johnny. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Let's look at, you know, there's an estimate that the EFL clubs are losing around about £20 million a month with grounds empty. This weekend, it looks like there'll be nine games with a 1,000 fans in. You know, okay, that's a that's a a baby step forward, perhaps. But let's look at the systemic issue: is football capable of looking after itself? And by that, I mean, you know, it's been talked about in the past. Should football get an independent regulator to be almost like the ombudsman for football?
1: You know, you kind of put your finger on it there, mate. It is self. Uh, well maybe regulation or, or 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 being self-sustainable being responsible that's the biggest issue like the EFL gets a lot of criticism maybe people don't understand that the EFL is not an all-powerful body like the FA or whatever the EFL is just the clubs so the executive the Rick Parry and, and David Baldwin who's the e chief exec and, and the guys that they can only do what the clubs tell them to do so their ability to move on things like cost control is limited by how willing the clubs are to embrace it. As Anne-Marie said, the salary cap is an absolute must. First thing they need to do is start to get rid of the madness that, that, that pervades the, 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 the Football League in that attempt to get to the Premier League. But even getting the salary cap has taken a long time. It's still not over the line in Leagues 1 and League 2. At the Championship, there's will there, they say, but there's not really any movement because what you've got, of course, is clubs that are desperate to get the Premier League thinking, well, wait a minute, you know, yes, we need this, but not now because now we want to get into the Premier League, so we'll have it in a few years' time. They just That needs to stop. So whether an independent regulator is able to do that, I don't know. Again, it comes down to the clubs accepting being responsible and they face this really bleak situation now without fans, with no TV money coming in. They have to be sensible and, and and do something that's not selfish, that's for the good of of all the clubs in their league. But does football have the ability to do that? We don't see it very often, I'm afraid. I do think there has to be a bailout of some sort, but it's probably like a last chance bailout. It's a one-off because from a Premier League point of view, they're, they're saying, well, if we keep giving you money, you then give it to basket case owners. They'd spend it on huge salaries for, for, for silly players. Why should we even bother? And I get all that. So, you know, uh, to get through this winter, I don't see any other way because they're not going to get the revenue from fans. They, they need that bailout, but it would have to come with strings attached. It would have to come with the club saying from championship down, cost controls, salary caps, and fit and proper owners. i mentioned it. that's the biggest problem. It's a problem in the Premier League. Let's face it. It's not a championship problem. It's a problem in the Premier League. And what we get, is a vicious cycle where a club gets pushed to the absolute brink we don't none of us who love football want to see it die so we all get behind the idea that the next person's going to save it but that next person's often worse than the last one and there's a public pressure to get the deal through it happens and then somewhere down the line they find that oh wait a minute this guy's just in it for a property deal there has to be an end to that cycle so maybe that's where your independent regulator comes in that 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 takes the heat out of those situations and and is able to assess the, the, the would be owners in real time, then because because otherwise you just get South Ends and you get Berries and you get you know Burnley's and you get Wiggins, not not, yeah. not Burnley's Macclesfield sorry, <laughs> Burnley, <laughs>
0: yeah. But what about you know? There's a, a lower league manager of my acquaintance, Anne Marie, who has assi- insisted to me for years that. Leagues one and league two, really, should go part time. You know, he said. Well, look around at, at the rest of Europe. There, there are two credible leagues at most in both in most countries. What about the possibility of of the lower leagues going part time and maybe even regionalized?
2: You know, I hadn't thought of that actually. In terms of the lower leagues going part time, I think there'll be massive resistance to that. I'm huge resistance like Jonathan just alluded to there about that the clubs are qu- you know the clubs a collective work in terms of the EFL I think they would push back on that quite hard um and particularly they've been professional for such a long time but I think Jonathan's right there needs to be a radical change here because coronavirus has changed things immensely so I think it's not unreasonable to put that on the table at least have it as a consideration at least have a think about it maybe I know it's a bit out there and it's a bit radical but why not do it for this year or into the next season just because of the coronavirus pandemic allow that to to you know, this situation has changed a lot of things. This pandemic has changed a lot of things and, and football needs to accept that That changes will have to be made. So yes, I, I think it's, it's a worthy suggestion put it on the table. It's probably going to get a lot of pushback because as I mentioned, vested interest, but I think it's something that should be considered. As for regionalization, I mean, you've kind of got that already within the lower leagues anyway. The problem is though, I think for them is getting people through the door and I know, From what I read, um, Brian Barwick has written to the government on behalf of the National League because they rely on live attendance for their clubs. And, of course, the announcement came yesterday that some clubs within the EFL will be having at least 1,000 fans through the door. Why not do that for the National League? If anything, it's easier to do it for the National League because a lot of the grounds are, are outside anyway, if that makes sense. And you can space people out so they can watch the games. And I think for the National League, they will need Fans through the door. because, as I mentioned, the main source of their income is gate receipts.
0: Mm. Well, I'm hearing that some national league clubs are now offering more money than football league clubs, and you're getting you know seasoned players who've played as high as the championship turning up in the national league just from a you know financial standpoint. Uh, Johnny, just a, a final look at this. What about the fan run model? You know, I went to see uh, Barry AFC uh, in their first home game a couple of weeks ago. AFC, AFC Wimbledon, you know they've got their new stadium on the on the blocks. Is that a viable model? Oh, I'd, I'd
1: love to see something like that. I mean, I think I think the kind of German model of uh, yeah, I don't know fifty one percent public or fan ownership would would be amazing. But I come back to the the sort of the, the, the fact that it's the clubs that control this. You'd have to have a whole lot of owners almost voting themselves out of business, and I can't see that happening. I'm afraid, Mike. I, I like the idea. But it would maybe require this independent regulator or, 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 or you know, a, a, a kind of agency coming in to save the clubs and then imposing new rules. Because I cannot see the existing owners and so on voting for something like that. But what we do need, what the fan model gives you, is people trying to run clubs for the long term and for the good of what the club is and represents and not just a short term personal financial gain. And that's you know, what we've been talking about here is what we need uh, at football league level.
0: Yeah, well, as I mentioned, I spent one Saturday at uh, Bury watching the Phoenix Club. I, I spent last Saturday at Accrington Stanley, which is run by Andy Holt, who's warned repeatedly that a financial reckoning is upon us. What's happening around those clubs in the cradle of the professional game in the northwest is a social and sporting scandal. Two clubs gone, more to come. I fear so. And it could be your club next. Football clubs matter, they represent communities, hopes, and dreams, and they must be protected soon. Thanks to Johnny and Anne-Marie for their thoughts and insights and opinions. And as ever, thanks to you for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast.